welcome to episode 55 of the X-Files Retrospective Podcast, released through Bureau 42. I'm your host, Blaine Dowler. This time around, we're discussing Season 3, Episode 4, Clyde Brookman's Final Repost. The IMDb user rating is 9.2 out of 10, which makes it tied for the second best of the series with an episode from Season 5. At least those are the numbers at the time I pulled them for the full series. The episode originally aired on October 13th, 1995, series creator Chris Carter's 39th birthday, and the episode brings the characters to Minnesota for the second time in the series. Now, most of what we're going to have to say about this one is in terms of the production crew, more so than the episode itself, but we'll get into that in a moment. This was written by Darren Morgan, who was introduced to the X-Files as the guy inside the suit and Fluke Man, who had the story idea behind the episode Blood, and who previously scripted Humbug. So this is his second scripting credit, but third credit on the writing teams, and he will end up with five writing credits total on the series. Similarly, David Nutter's involvement is winding down. This is his 12th directorial run on the X-Files out of 15 total episodes. Now, getting into the basic plot of the episode, we have a serial killer who considers himself a puppet, and that's actually the way he's credited, is as puppet, played by Stuart Charno of Friday the 13th Part 2, Christine, Just One of the Guys, Once Bitten, Chicago Hope, and more, and he's specifically targeting psychics. He feels he's also a psychic himself, and he keeps going to them to find out why he feels compelled to do the things that he does. The local police departments are stumped, so they call in a famous TV psychic to consult. His name is the Stupendous Yappy, played by Yacht Broker, an individual who unfortunately passed away earlier this year, 2015, and who worked most frequently as a stand-in. Now, what the stand-ins are, they're people who allow the film crews to prepare sets for filming by standing where the stars would stand. So when you've got something with an intense shooting schedule like the X-Files that doesn't really give a lot of time off for the principals, so David Duchovny and Gillian Anderson are in so many scenes, Duchovny in particular, that they don't have time to get things set up with Duchovny and Anderson on set. So they hire other people to stand where Duchovny, Anderson, and Mitch Pileggi or anyone else would stand, so that by the time Anderson and Duchovny are ready to come onto that set and film those sequences, it's all prepared and ready to go. Now, Yacht Broker was David Duchovny's stand-in on the series, so he's cast in a role with him in mind from the start, hence Yap playing this dependence Yappy. Now, the way he plays it is just completely over the top, with wild eyebrows giving vague advice, throwing Mulder out of the room for giving off negative energy, and even though his leads satisfy the local police, including one played by Frank Cassini of Watchmen, Time Cop, Little Brother of War, Break a Leg and More, and another officer played by Dwight McPhee of Pushing Tin, This Boy's Life, Snow Falling on Cedars, School Diggers, The Secret of Bear Mountain, and more than that, including three previous appearances as three other minor characters on different episodes of The X-Files. Mulder and Scully are just not convinced. He's vague. He's talking about things being, you know, male, Caucasian, in a huge age range, and, you know, of a wide variety of possible hair colors. You know, it's just playing to the statistics of serial killers. So Mulder and Scully are not at all convinced that those are useful leads. The useful lead that they get is when the next victim is found by a man named Clyde Brookman, played by Peter Boyle, who is probably best known for Everybody Loves Raymond, Taxi Driver, Young Frankenstein, Johnny Dangerously, and a lot more than that. Now, Brookman is recognized by Mulder as a genuine psychic who has the somewhat limited ability of foreseeing how people die, which is a fairly new take on psychics. So they ultimately learn that his ability is almost useless in terms of tracking down anything involved with the case. Mulder gives Brookman an object that was found at one of the crime scenes, and he's able to tell you exactly the cause of death of the sculptor who created it, 
but nothing about the owner or killer. We also see a very different take on the idea of psychics and psychic behavior. If the future can be seen, and it's inalterable, then what's the point of doing anything? And that's why Bruckman is this miserable guy who just feels like life is pointless, because as far as he's concerned, it is. Nothing he does has any impact on how anyone else lives or dies. So he goes, yeah, it's all written in stone, and I'll just play along. He does help solve the case, not terribly a lot through his psychic ability, although that's part of it, but more about having intimate knowledge of one particular victim, just because he happened to have sold him a life insurance policy, and once by leading him to the body of another victim. Now, when they're in the woods searching for that victim, he claims that he got his gift by focusing on the death of the big bopper in the accident that also killed Buddy Holly, even though they got some details wrong. It was Richie Valance who joined that plane after winning a coin toss. The big bopper was just too sick to drive and didn't want to take the bus. Now, Boyle himself wasn't a fan of playing his own death scene. He'd had a few close calls due to his own health issues, and it was just very uncomfortable, so he decided to just make those sequences as quick and painless as possible for him. And Boyle did eventually live on to age of 71, passing away in 2006. Now, two of the psychics on this were also played by people who would be known to X-Files fans. Karen Conoval plays Madame Zelda here, who is one of the psychics that's killed. She'll return in season four under very heavy makeup as the mother of the Peacock family. Another was Alex Diaken, who plays another psychic, notably the last one that we see in the episode. He's previously been seen as a museum curator in Humbug, and will return as three different characters later in this season, and a fourth character in the second X-Files film. But the case continues as circumstances bring Brookman and the serial killer together, when Brookman is placed in protective custody in the hotel that the killer happens to work in as a bellhop. Brookman foresees the killer's death as, you know, the killer attacking Mulder from behind after Mulder steps in a cream pie. And that's kind of how it plays out, although that almost backfires on Mulder. Because Brookman had told Mulder, I see you stepping in a cream pie, and then later you don't see the killer because he's sneaking up behind you. When Mulder steps in the pie, he turns around to check behind him to protect himself, and that's when he gets hit from behind. So if he hadn't actually turned around, the killer would have charged him from straight ahead and he'd have been better able to defend himself. So fortunately, Scully comes in and saves Mulder from the serial killer by killing the puppet of the serial killer himself. So this whole time, Brookman is only able to see how people die. That's the death he foresaw as opposed to Mulder's. And in fact, the dialogue we have up to this gives hints about all three of them. So Mulder asks Brookman how he is going to die because Mulder says he wants to know. Brookman says, no, you don't. And then later on in the long drive... He just makes a random comment about how there's worse ways to go, but he can't think of anything more humiliating than autoerotic asphyxiation. Mulder says, why are you telling me this? And Brookman says, oh, yeah, forget I mentioned it. When Scully asks what he sees about their future, he tells her that, you know, he sees them together in bed, you know, a bit of a tender caress, tears running down his face. Scully says there are hits and there are misses, and then there are misses. Turns out it actually is a perfect hit, as Brookman is describing the way he's found after his own suicide. And we also hear him say that, you know, when Scully asks if she's going to die, he tells her she won't. That's something that we'll actually come back to in season six. Now, Brookman had also foreseen the death of his neighbor as she was going senile and had forgotten to feed her dog. So the dog basically eats her after she passes away. And Scully adopts the dog and names it Queequag. That's something that we'll be coming back to through the season because she does keep it through upcoming episodes. But I said a lot of this that we're going to be talking about is more of the production and the crew, and not just about the stand-ins, but a lot of the references that show up in the script. When Darren Morgan first sat down to write this, he didn't plan to make it funny. He wanted it dark and tense 
like his favorite episode of the series, Beyond the Sea. So when Brookman's trying to get hits and misses off these items that Mulder's giving him, he claims that a piece of fabric was torn off his New York Knicks t-shirt. That's actually referenced to Beyond the Sea. The more interesting references, at least to my mind, are the ones that go back to the classic silent comedy era, and the films of Buster Keaton in particular. So some of the less obvious references are the names of the police officers who were named after the writing and directing team of John C. Havez and Eddie Klein, who worked together on a number of projects, including Seven Chances, which was later remade as The Bachelor, starring Chris O'Donnell. More notably is reference to writer and director of The General, which I think is probably the best silent film in history, a man named Clyde Brookman. Now, Brookman worked not just with the Three Stooges, but also with Buster Keaton on a number of projects, including his final one. Not all silent film directors survived the transition to talkies. Some had a tough time of it because it really changed the way movies were made. Prior to the talking pictures, a lot of times they wouldn't have the dialogue and even a lot of plot points figured out. They would just have a bunch of people standing in a room, having mouthed conversations with each other that weren't making any sense, and playing a variety of emotions and close-ups which they could then edit together around a script that hadn't been finished yet. As soon as you make the move to talkies, you can't do that. So a lot of the silent film directors just couldn't work with the change and couldn't get further work. Brookman was not one of those. He was more so one of the ones that fell victim to the industry bias, where they're saying, oh yeah, you were great in the silent films? Well, movies have changed, and the silent film directors don't know what they're doing anymore and just wouldn't give them a chance. So he ended up broke and out of work by the time the 1950s rolled around. To the point that he was so desperate and destitute that he borrowed a gun from Buster Keaton, went out to a very nice restaurant on Santa Monica Boulevard, had a meal he couldn't possibly afford, and then killed himself with that weapon in a public area. Some stories report it was in the restaurant restroom, others say it was in a phone booth just outside, but it was on Santa Monica Boulevard in a public area in and around that restaurant. Now that's kind of a bit of a down note. And I don't want to end the podcast on a down note, so I'm just going to add some more trivia here. This episode was the first episode to win major Emmys. Now, they'd had some Emmy recognition in previous seasons. In season one, Mark Snow's music was nominated for Best Theme Music, and it won the Emmy for the Best Title Sequence. In season two, there were no Emmy wins, but there were much more higher profile in terms of Emmy nominations. There was a writing nomination for Dwayne Berry, a sound editing nomination for Dwayne Berry, guest actress nomination for CCH Pounder in Dwayne Berry, editing nominations, one for Sleepless and one for Dwayne Berry, cinematography nomination for One Breath, and outstanding drama series for the season as a whole. After those, season three is where the show would really make its mark. And we've talked about how the industry noticed it right off the bat. Fans are starting to notice it later. These Emmy wins were coming in to increase the profile. In season three, the show would win five Emmys total and be nominated, but not win three other Emmys. The first two wins in the major categories were for this episode, with outstanding performance by a guest actor, namely Peter Boyle, as well as outstanding performance by a writer, Darren Morgan. I'll go into detail on the other wins and nominations for this season as the season plays out. So in the meantime, we're waiting for the rest of that season to come up. You can join us again in two weeks for The List. Please feel free to rate or review the show on iTunes, Stitcher, whatever podcatcher you use, or share it with people that you think may enjoy it. And while you're looking for something to fill your time in the next two weeks, I would check out The General, which was directed by Clyde Brookman and co-written by him. It is now in the public domain, having been originally released in 1926. So you can get it from, you know, Internet Archives, from YouTube, Kind of Lorber Home Video in both DVD and Blu-ray. There's a number of other home video releases which are significantly cheaper for some pretty exceptional reasons. 
I call out Kino Lorber by name because they're known for doing some very high quality restorations of films. Not quite at the Criterion Collection level, but I would put them the second best for restoring films of this era. So the general is definitely worth checking out. I would highly recommend it. When there's the 100-year celebration of the American Film Institute, the general was one of the few silent films to make the list and the highest ranked of the silent films. I believe it came in at about number 17 out of 100 on their top 100 American comedies of all time. So very well worth checking out. So join us in two weeks' time as we discuss the list, and thank you for listening. Intro and outro music is Outside Poolside by Laswell, created under the Creative Commons license. All other content copyright 2015, Bureau 42. Please feel free to send any comments or feedback to bureau42podcasts at gmail.com or leave us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. Thank you for listening.